Hey everyone, Chris Shipley here. Before we get started with this week's episode of Old Man Strength, I wanted to bring on an old friend of ours, George Trice from the Jack Trice Legacy Foundation. If you guys remember, and if you don't, you can go back and listen to episode 2.13 and learn about George's ties to Jack, his time at ISU, and how through the Legacy Foundation, he's trying to keep Jack's legacy intact and in remembrance. But today, I thought we'd bring on George and let's talk about uh, the Jack Trice Legacy Foundation golf outing he's got going on August 6th. George, how are you doing today? I'm good, Ship. Appreciate you having me on here. Yeah, no problem, man. We'd love to have you on. Uh, it's uh, it's good to catch up with you. I know it's been, it's been a minute, but uh, since last we've talked on uh, on video, I've moved to Arizona, so I'm trying to stay cool. I mean, 104 today. I stayed inside, but I'm, but I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> That's usually what happens. I lived in Phoenix uh, for about six months when I was a freshman in high school, and it was absolutely brutal. Uh, unfortunately I, I moved there in January, showed up and went to school, had shorts on, you know, pure white. Everybody's like, look at this loser. Who's, who's where's this guy from? So I got branded pretty quick as an outsider. Yeah. I mean, when it's, when it's 55 degrees and you're coming from somewhere where it's like probably five, I did that when I moved to LA, it was December and everybody's wearing bubble coats and I'm wearing t-shirts and some shorts. Like, Hey, this is, this is summertime right now. So that's right. I, I get where you're talking about. That's right. So uh, Jack Trace legacy foundation golf tournament, August 6th. Tell us about it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to point at my QR code. I so see it. Be a video. I got a QR code there and then I got a QR code there for the website. Uh, but no, we're having the second annual event. We had one last year. Um, good turnout. Uh, had a lot of volunteers. Had about 10 teams participate. Raised about $3,000 um, for the Jack Trice Scholarship and about $3,000 for the foundation. And so the second annual one is coming up on August 6th. Plan that date. Uh, I try to do better than doing it the Friday before the big game. Luckily, the Iowa State game is away. Uh, but I also didn't realize, since I don't live in Iowa, that it's tax-free weekend. So, um, you know, people are going to be out shopping for school clothes for their kids and stuff like that. So, But they can do that after the tournament because it's an 8 o'clock shotgun start out in Adele at River Valley. Cy will be there to send us off. I will be presenting the $50,000 check to Cy. It was a fake check, but... You, they'll, they'll get the drift. Um, but, yeah, but giving side a check, kind of presenting that to Iowa State because of our donors, because of people that have donated to making the, the logo you see here, um, all the things that people have done for us from, from treasure and time, we hit 50000 And that's the minimum amount to get a scholarship endowed. And so now we're going to be celebrating with this golf event saying, we did it. Let's have some fun. Now let's go on to the next milestone. And so that's what this event is about. This event now is more focused on what else can we do as the foundation? Because now that we are starting to get Jack's legacy solidified at Iowa State from an academic standpoint, now we can branch out and, and kind of do other things to kind of keep his memory and legacy going. Yeah, uh, totally didn't wanted to go to it last year. I had a buddy of mine that signed up and worked it for you. Uh, Joel Clement. So uh, we're actually going to sign up. My wife just told me before I walked down or she's like, why don't you sign me up too? And we'll just do it together. So we're definitely nice. going to sign up and, and volunteer. And then we're bringing up a couple of things for you to auction off. And you're going to have some of that stuff too, right? Some auction stuff that they can, that they can uh, bid on. Yes. And so if you go to, to Trice Legacy, if you look up Trice Legacy on Twitter, 
Instagram or on Facebook, you'll see that we've been posting about this event. There's actually going to be an online auction this year. So everything is going to be digital. Anybody can participate. Even if you're not there, we will send you uh, your prize. There's some trips on there that have been donated. Um, minimum bids, you know, some are a Lando trip for four, um, starting at like $1,500. And so people have donated these, these events. Um, there's been some uh, memorabilia, some one-of-a-kind artwork, some one-of-a-kind, um, you know, different things that have been donated. And so August 1st, that will open live and we will we'll announce that. But you can look up, see what you want, start placing bids, and we will close it at the end of the tournament so that people that are in person can win. If they've won, they can get their prize. And if not, we'll just, again, mail it off that Saturday or Sunday um, so that they can get their prize as well. So um, I appreciate you doing that. Uh, shout out to Joel. Joel um, sent his uh, information to his daughter. So his daughter, Emily, uh, has yep. recruited seven other people from Mid-American. So Mid-American Energy has eight people showing up to help us on that Saturday. So Nationwide, uh, Principal, EMC, everybody, you know, Mid-American is doing their thing. Can you get some people out there to beat Mid-American? I mean, I work for Nationwide, so they got to do something, you know. There you go. That's right. Well, I'm just super excited uh, that things have grown so well for you. Um, and uh, and the legacy that you're building. Tell us a little bit about, in case people haven't heard, what what the Jack Trice Legacy Foundation is and, and kind of what inspired you there. So honestly, this started in 2020, um, right after the, the, the death of George Floyd, uh, the murder of, death of George Floyd. There were some Iowa Staters going and comparing uh, that situation with the death of Jack Trice. And I got tagged in it. And so what, what they were saying, they were comparing their deaths of racially motivated. And that was really the end of it. And they kept going deeper and deeper into it. And I, and I really got on there and said, hey, don't don't do that. Don't put those two in the same in the same context. I said, wrong place, wrong time, bad outcome. Jack was was doing his thing, playing football for for a university. Um, and because of his race, he was targeted. He wasn't accepted. And the injuries ultimately was his demise. And so when I when I did when I heard that and I started looking at that, I decided that it was time for me to, to give back because Iowa State does a great job of recognizing Jack from the athletic standpoint. Um, there are a lot of people involved in that um, from the five stripes, um, the all the memorabilia, the committee that we're doing for the hundredth year anniversary next year. A lot of that stuff is about the athletic department. And so what we're trying to do for the 100th anniversary, which is in 2023, and the foundation is to go further than that and look at the academic aspect of what he wanted to do. Animal husbandry was his, was his major. Uh, he wanted to go back down south and teach ex-slaves how to share crop. And so I've actually ran into, and this is going to sound weird, but I've actually made a connection with the bloodline, the original bloodline of Trice uh, down in Lexington, Tennessee. And they've invited me down to, to see a lot of what was down there, um, the plantation that, that Jack was born on. Um, no longer there, but the land is still there. A, a tornado took it out. The cemetery where Trices are buried. So I'm doing a lot of research and digging because I want to get this out of just Iowa and out of just the Cleveland area and go back down everywhere and, and get this out there. And so that's really what motivated me to do that. And I've been afforded some opportunities that others haven't. And it's my duty to pay it back and pay it forward. 
And so everything I do is on my spare time outside of work on the weekends, taking away from my kids just to get this legacy, um, you know, out in front. And the more that people can talk about it, the more that it can get broadcast around the country, ESPN, CBS, they did a good job during football season, but it's not just about football. And that's what I'm trying to do. And that's why my tagline is hashtag more than just football. It's about everything else that Jack was trying to do before his life was cut short. And so that's where the foundation comes in because that gives us the, the opportunity and the, um, the media to, medium to do the leadership programs and the development programs and the, 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 the uh, mentorship. Whereas we have just raised money for the scholarship and that is a separate entity. And so that will always grow, whether people donate through Amazon, donate through United Way, donate through their corporate giving at their, at their companies. Um, they can donate in so many different ways to support Iowa State and that scholarship at Iowa State. But they also have the choice to just support the foundation. One of my, one of my big donors is an Iowa fan, and I'm going to say that, but he's Iowa. He can't stand Iowa State. He's one of those guys, you know. <laughs> But but he likes me, you know, he, he, he likes me. He's, he's my friend. And when I told him what the foundation is trying to do and what the goal of the foundation is, and not just Iowa State, but to any HBCU, Ivy League or uh, trade school, he was all on board. He said, I'm here to help because once we got this endowment, now we can go across the country. Now, now we can get big. And so that's what we're trying to do after two years, hitting $50,000 couple key donors. I, I don't name my donors out there, but a couple key right. donors that helped us really get to this point. And I thank all of them for that. Well, congratulations. Uh, we're certainly uh, proud to be associated with you in a small way and to, and to help promote uh, what we can with you. And uh, I will see you on August 6th. I'll see you on August 6th. All right. Uh, thanks for sticking with us, guys. We're going to bring up that next episode. But uh, George, Good luck, and uh, we'll get you on, and, and maybe we'll wrap up uh, before football season and and see how it went and do some previews. Hey, I, I like that. And also, I'm going to throw out a shameless plug. Um, if you have not or have not heard, one of my good friends, Reggie Hayward, inducted into the Hall of Fame. That's September right. September 23rd, Baylor game. We're throwing a tailgate out there for him. Reggie got a lot of people, and they're all coming in from Chicago. I don't know what's going to happen in Ames, Iowa. But I'm going to be there. Um, I hope everybody else is there to support him for the accomplishments that he did, um, because I, I will be uh, representing him there as well. All right. Sounds good. All right. All right. Thanks a lot, George. Thank you. Yep. This Three Beards Media podcast is sponsored by Revelton Distilling Company. When Rob and Christy Taylor started following the Kentucky Bourbon Trail in 2012, they fell in love with not only bourbon, but the entire distilling process. Just eight short years later, in 2020, Revelton Distilling Company was opened, offering an entire family of products, including vodka, gin, whiskey, and Revelton Shine. Come visit the tasting room at 1400 West Clay Street in Osceola, Iowa, where you can sample one of their many spirits, including four gold medal winners. Can't make it to Osceola today? Not a problem as you can pick some up at your local Hy-Vee or Fairway grocery stores. Follow Revelton Distilling on Twitter or Instagram at ReveltonDC or their website, www.reveltondistilling.com. This Three Beards Media podcast may contain mature themes, and if you're not down with that, we got three words for you. Like, 
the podcast. Nailed it. Would you like to sample some of my nuts? Hello, and welcome back to yet again another edition of Old Man Strength, a podcast of Three Beards Media and brought to you, brought to you excuse me, by Revelton Distilling Company. Uh, we are very excited once again to chat with you guys to solve all of the world's problems. I am Tim Johnson, joined as always by Chris Shipley. Chris, how are we doing this evening? Good. I was grimacing hard when you said we'd solve all the world's problems. <laughs> well, there's probably but, only know. like one or two things wrong with the world right now. Um, right. Yeah. And we're going to go over them tonight. <laughs> it, it does seem like like things are, are pretty much under control and there's not uh, any amount of chaos out in the world whatsoever right now. Um, yeah. Man, it's been it's been crazy. The even the 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 fourth was kind of a, a crazy holiday. I don't know if if you were able to relax or enjoy or what. I do know that you actually participated in a parade this weekend. Uh, I did. I uh, Three Beards Media uh, did some promotion for for our sponsors, Revelton Distilling Company, and our new uh, sponsored segment sponsor, Wintrust Mortgage, with Kyle Lehman. So. Uh, we were able to, to do that. It was just really just an excuse for me to drive the convertible through a parade. That's what my wife said. She <laughs> said, you're not fooling anybody. So, uh, but, uh, you know, and then it, I don't know, became like 185 degrees out or whatever else. And then I think I laid around in the air conditioning the rest of the day. Yeah, I, there was a point during the weekend where I thought, boy, I should really be outside. But then I thought that involved getting off the couch and putting on pants and decided that neither of those things sounded like they were worth the effort. Um, but I did get out and I, I took the daughter fishing and stuff like that. So that was that was fun. She she had a great time with that. So, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, great. Uh, Chris, I wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce our guest this evening. Yeah, well, you know, typically we joke around and say that, uh, you know, two old white males you know, got all the answers and, and we're solving the world's problems <laughs> and it's usually uh, tongue in cheek. Um, but to be in all seriousness, I think that's part of the problem right now in this world is we don't have enough diverse conversations and bringing on people that sure as the hell know a lot more about certain subjects like, you know, a woman's body and their right to make their own choices I think there's too many uh, old white males making those decisions now. So we thought we'd bring on somebody to straighten us up. So uh, Stephanie, Copley, why you brought me here? Yeah, we're not talking <laughs> sports tonight. I'm sorry. Wait a second. <laughs> uh, Steph, yeah, Steph, we just wanted you to fix white men. I, right. We should probably be able. Oh, I mean, like, this should be a pretty quick podcast. So I think you'd probably, you'd probably we should be, able be to out of here in about 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Fine. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I was brought uh, here under false pretenses. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think you were. I wasn't. You're right. Uh, 
Steph, thanks for joining us. Of course, Steph, uh, co-host of Title Nine Pod on uh, on Cyclone Fanatic, uh, well-known Twitter verser, uh, amazing mother and wife and lawyer, and just an overall good person. So, Thank Steph, you. thanks for thanks kind. for taking time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I can be kind sometimes. I can be a nice guy. <laughs> Once every week or so. Once every week or so, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm I'm pumped to be here and to have a nice little fireside chat. Yeah, absolutely. So, so step for for our listeners who might might not be familiar, why don't you go ahead and, and tell us a little bit more about yourself beyond what what Chris just said? Okay, like you can so, correct, correct the record. Uh, <laughs> correct the record. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess for purposes of this conversation, I feel like saying what I'm not is probably important. So, I guess I'm a lawyer. I am a lawyer. Chris was right about that. Um, I pr- I'm a corporate counsel for a company here in Des Moines. And before that I did workers compensation law for about a decade. I was a lawyer um, practicing. And then I was an administrative law judge in workers compensation. Um, but I'm not a constitutional law scholar. I never practiced constitutional law, but the stuff we're going to talk about obviously involves a lot of constitutional issues. Um, and because I'm a lawyer and I have the law school background, I think I can offer some additional insight into what some of the decisions of the last few weeks mean beyond what you're getting on Twitter, what you're seeing in headlines and snippets of the news. But I think more important than my profession is the fact that I am a woman. I'm a mom of two young girls, and I feel very passionately about a lot of these issues. And Chris knows this, but I was, I was telling a friend You know, I've been mad about laws before. I've been mad about court decisions before, but this is the first time I've been scared. And I recognized how privileged I am to say something like that because people of color and people in the LBGTQ community have been living in fear for a much longer time than me. So I recognize that privilege, but I'm scared. I'm mad. I'm fired up. And that's why I'm here tonight. So um, I just wanted to kind of preface everything I say by saying I'm not someone who can answer every intricacy of the constitution, but I feel like I have a decent framework to help people understand and at least provide my perspective and, and why I have the perspective I do. And, you know, there have been, it's not just uh, the turning of Roe versus overturning of Roe versus Wade and sending that back to the States. It's been uh, a number of decisions here. Yes. Uh, it, it was not just one single uh, thing that has happened in the last mm. couple of weeks. And it it's feels been a wild like couple of weeks. The yeah. hits just keep coming. Right. Um, yeah. uh, for a, a people that have been very concerned about activist judges, it sure seems there have been some pretty uh, uh, president press precedents reversing yes. precedent setting. Uh, decisions yeah. that have been um, uh, kind of shocking. I guess I shouldn't say shocking because they weren't expected from this court, but shocking just in the fact that uh, it overturned literally decades of precedent. Yeah. And just how far some of the decisions went. I was trying to think of a time in our lives when there's been a series of decisions come out this quickly that have felt this monumental And I couldn't remember one. And I think part of it is um, now we have the rapid fire reaction on social media that didn't exist, you know, decades Mm -hmm. ago. And so it might feel worse than it has in the past. And and maybe there's a 
um, you know, a session that I'm not thinking of where these decisions came out in such a rapid fire way, but this one certainly feels monumental. And for me, and you guys can tell me if you had a different experience, but the one that kind of started the dominoes falling came out June 21st. It was, it was Carson V McCain, which, um, or Macon, I guess is how I think you pronounce it when, um, the justices ruled 6-3 that Maine violated the Constitution when it refused to make public funding available for students to attend religious institutions or schools that were going to provide religious instruction. And that was kind of the first one that I was like, oh, here we go. And uh, what happened was in some of the state's rural and sparsely populated areas, which we're familiar with here in Iowa, um, the school districts didn't have secondary schools. So they didn't have their own middle schools and high schools, and they were sending students to different districts or they were paying tuition um, to the schools that the student chose. But they were the state of Maine was refusing to reimburse the tuition for religious um, schools. And Justice Roberts, who wrote the decision, said that's discrimination against religion. And he went on to say that it doesn't matter that the Maine program was in intended to provide students with the equivalent of a free public education, which is, of course, secular. So that was the one that kind of started the dominoes falling that I think set forth this crazy couple of weeks of decisions. That um, decision is probably low on the radar as far as a lot of people heard. I, I, I had not heard or wasn't even aware of that one until you started to speak about it tonight. Yeah. And I think that that might be part of the problem in just how the media and how things are are portrayed out there because they would much Roe v. Wade to me and maybe to the, the person that doesn't pay attention a lot is the first one that is shocking for them. But to your point, there's a lot of other ones here that have happened down the pike that uh, that should have raised some flags to begin with. So there's one more that actually came before Road too. Um, it will, it's not, so the, the decision that overturned Roe was called Dobbs. So I'll try to refer to it as Dobbs going forward in this podcast. But before Dobbs, the day before Dobbs, it was New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, which again was a 6-3 decision. When the court ruled for the first time that the Constitution protects an individual's right to carry a handgun in public. And what they did in that decision was they struck down a licensing law that had required New Yorkers who want to carry a handgun in public to show a special need to defend themselves. So, for example, you know, if someone had been um, receiving physical threats or, you know, walked through an area in which he or she was harassed. The court said that law that required a special need to defend yourself to carry that public uh, handgun in public was a violation of the Second Amendment's right to bear arms. And Justice Thomas wrote the decision, and he said that courts should only uphold state gun laws if there's a tradition of such law or regulation in U.S. history. And it's my understanding, and this is kind of the interesting part here, that the law that the New Yorkers were trying to enforce was enacted in the early 1900s. So if that's not uh, you know, U.S. history, I'm not sure what will be. Right. And effectively, it makes this decision makes it harder for states to regulate guns because the regulation has to be, and this is in the decision, consistent with the historical understanding of the Second Amendment. It doesn't mean that states can't regulate guns. It just means that it has to be in 
consistent with the historical understanding of Second Amendment. I don't know what the historical understanding of the Second Amendment is anymore. No. I don't know if that means when the document was ratified in the 1780s. I don't know what that means. But it's regardless of what that will eventually become, what that standard will become, it was a huge blow to people, the vast majority of Americans who want stricter gun control laws after what's been another devastating year, devastating month, devastating week of gun violence. So that, yeah, that one came the day before the Dobbs decision and that one stung. It, it seems to me, uh, particularly, so when I look at, at uh, Justice Thomas, who has spent the last 30 years as a conservative judge on the court, um, it seems like particularly in in some of those early decisions, he was kind of signaling uh, now that he has Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and and kind of has a more because even even previously, I think some of the more conservative justices weren't so conservative. Uh, correct. Right. Yeah. And so and so it's it almost, it almost <laughs> felt like like in reading some of of. Uh, what he wrote in these decisions, it almost seemed like he was kind of winking uh, to his base of now's now's the time. Is, is that is that a reasonable assessment from what it certainly seems to be? And I know I'm coming from a biased standpoint. Me too. I mean, obviously, but that is how I feel. I mean, in the decisions, in all of these decisions that we'll talk about, like you said earlier, they are departures from precedent in a significant way. Um, and I think that is what is maybe the most unnerving part of this is if we're suddenly taking this turn from precedent, what's next? Mm -hmm. And the Dobbs decision is the scariest one in that regard. Although it makes you wonder the case where they forced, um, the main tax dollars to go towards religious institution. I mean, where's the line, you know? So in a lot of these cases, the question becomes, well, where is the line? And I think that's the scary part. And I think that's, you're absolutely right about that. Well, I mean, I, go ahead, Tim. No, I was going to say, I, I think, I think the part that becomes uh, the challenge when you talk about a line. So I, I forgive me, I forget, I forget the, the case, but the, the football coach, yeah, the one that came a couple of days after Dobbs, Kennedy, the uh, Ken yes. Bremerton School mm, District. Yes. Yeah. Right. So in in Kennedy, I I think I don't know that that the justices necessarily understood that that opened the doors to pagans, to Muslims, to right, right, right? like it right. opened the door to a lot of things that are antithetical to what I think their goal was in pushing so strongly for this particular outcome. And I, and so I think, I think in any number of these, there's kind of a double-edged sword on some of these. Right. So, and it makes you wonder the case we're talking about, it came a couple of days after Dobbs. It was a decision where the Supreme court said a Washington state high school coach had the right to pray on the field, on the football field immediately after the game. And the school district had said, Hey, coach, we understand what you're doing, but you can't do this. Um, it's a violation of the establishment clause that says, you know, a, a school can't establish a religion and, or endorse, endorse, excuse me, a religious point of view. Coach said, hey, you know, that's you're violating my First Amendment rights to speak freely about my religion. And 
you're right about that. It makes you wonder what would have been the outcome of this case had it been a Muslim uh, prayer, you know, or um, had it been a Muslim coach doing a uh, or a Hindu or something, anything other than than Christianity. It really makes you wonder, would the court have even taken it at that point? Yeah, right. Yeah. In that case, um, I keep thinking about that case. That's this one. I'm a little bit torn on because generally speaking, I feel like if you want to pray, pray, do your mm-hmm. thing. That is kind of my mantra through all of this. Is you do you. It's fine. But uh, my issue is this is a high school football coach. OK, he's praying on the 50 yard line immediately after a game in a very public setting. And the majority, the court's majority said prayers, the prayer he was doing was not in his role as a coach. It was private speech after the game concluded and uh, that Kennedy's prayers, that the coach Kennedy's prayers were not publicly broadcast. They were not recited to a captive audience and that students were not required or expected to participate. Mm -hmm. My problem with this is that if you've ever been a kid, (laughs) you know, the, the effect of peer pressure. Uh, My parents were both Catholic, but they chose not to raise me Catholic. I was not really raised religiously at all. But by the time I was in middle school and my friends are going to um, CCD and Wednesday night youth groups, I was suddenly like, well, what the hell is everybody else doing? And why am I not a part of it? And I felt this pressure to to be involved in one of those things. And that had had nothing to do with the coach praying. That was just my own internal pressure that I felt. So I can't, the, the, or the suggestion that students aren't required or expected to participate, probably true. I'm, I'm sure he didn't say, get your ass over here. We're going to pray, but the implicit, uh, pressure on those kids is significant. And that's the part that really freaks me out. Well, the part that freaked me out is that there were students that came right out and said, and this was not necessarily testimony in court, but said uh-huh. that they were retaliated against for not participating. Yes, right. right. Yes. Right. And so you can go ahead and say, and I agree, if a coach wants to pray after a game, that's fine. I don't think there's a clear enough delineation between his role as an agency of the state. Right. Right. As an agent of the state, as someone who is, is uh, an agent of the school, and not as long as he is still providing instruction and guidance to uh, his team. Uh, and as long as there could even be the uh, interpretation that there might be consequences mm-hmm. for not participation. I think that's where we just need to be clear because again, had this been uh, a practicing member of the church of Satan, Right. Uh, doing this exact same thing, would the court have even taken it up? And I know and and that's I, my whole issue is, of course, right. they wouldn't have. <laughs> right. And, you know, I um, it's just th- these cases are so tricky because so much of it is um, the other part of it that bothers me about this case is so much of it is based exactly what you said on what kids are saying, um, what the coach is saying about when he did this. And I saw something in that case I've never seen before is in the dissent. Um, they actually posted a, there's actually a photograph in the descent of where he was praying, how many kids were around him, because in the majority, they suggest, you know, this is a private moment with, with himself and, and his, whatever, whoever he's praying to. Well, clearly that was not the case. This was a very public ordeal. Um, so I just, that one, the, the fact that it was, it's not even so much that they said it was okay for him to pray. It was just 
that so much of what they said in there opens the door, I think, to um, problems with kids feeling compelled to pray or um, people who do not practice Christianity praying and then, um, which is the double-edged sword, having Christians upset that they are praying and, you know, and relying on this decision as a means to do so. So I think this is probably not, I don't think this um, clears anything up for sure. No, I think it muddies the, the, the precedence that now has been set uh, even more. Uh, we talked about, you know, overturning precedence of so many years and so on. And I'll go back to um, the, the first case that you had talked about as far as uh, the religions in the school. And I think that mm-hmm. that opens up a door for what I see happening in the state of Iowa with some of the legislature and that is being pushed and, and vouchers like and things like that, that now have opened up the door for that. If it does get passed and then goes to court, that precedence then falls on that particular side of it. And I think the biggest thing that I heard in the last few weeks that I, I and I wish I could remember who said it, but it really spoke to me in that, and I will, I'm, I'm pretty open that, that I'm a Catholic, a practicing Catholic mm-hmm. here, and I'm in the minority in practicing Catholics when it comes to a lot of these issues. Um, but freedom of religion does not mean that we should kowtow to your particular religion on how we should do things. It just means that you have the right to practice whatever religion you want without persecution. That does not turn mean that because you are not able to do something in your faith does not turn around and then give the state a mandate to force your religion on top of me. Yeah. Because then you've done what you exactly, what you just described, you're persecuting someone else for not practicing your religion. So it's a, you're doing exactly what you sought to have avoided. That is exactly right. The irony is not lost on me that that's a lot of the same people who are uh, doing a lot of hand wringing over quote unquote Sharia law coming to America. Uh, Mm. Sure. Seem to worry about, uh, the role of religion in politics. Yeah, it's very interesting. <laughs> and I think that comes through most in Dobbs. Um, and if it's okay with you guys, there was two more that I wanted to mention. Then I kind of want to go backwards Please. to Dobbs Please. because I just, I feel like it's important to have the whole context of the this session of the court before we dive into Dobbs. So the next one that came the day after the, the coach praying was Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta. And this one really slid under the radar. I think it was a case that um, expanded the power of states over Native American tribes. And the court actually undercut its own ruling from just a couple of years ago. So what they said was the state of Oklahoma now has the right to prosecute a non-Native for child neglect, a a criminal act of a Native American child which occurred on the Cherokee Nation reservation. And until this decision, states had lacked jurisdiction over such crimes because reservations are sovereign. They physically Mm -hmm. exist inside the state, but they do not exist inside the state with respect to their criminal jurisdiction with, you know, in their territory. This is a huge departure from precedent. And if I were a Native American, I would be very scared right now because this is yet another degradation of their sovereignty and their rights um, as, a, you know, whatever nation they're in. In this case, it was the Cherokee Nation. And uh, 
again, I think this flew under the radar because it came in the days after Dobbs and people were still reeling from Dobbs. And to be frank, Native American um, law and decisions probably aren't as quote unquote sexy as some of the other things. And it just didn't get the amount of coverage that I thought it deserved because it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really scary for, for those tribes. I, I mean, again, I think to me, what struck, struck me the most about, uh, about that ruling was the idea of, uh, uh, government you know the quote-unquote government tyranny and, and government overreach and literally this was a perfect example of endorsing <laughs> government overreach yeah okay so there's that and then the very next day we have west virginia versus the environmental EPA. protection agency which absolutely was a which is a decision that uh, it's a major blow to the epa's power to regulate carbon emissions that cause climate change so the court said Anytime an agency, whether it's the EPA or another agency, wants to do something big and new, in this case, it was address climate change, that a regulation, meaning the rules they put in place as an agency for us to follow, those rules and regulations are presumptively invalid unless Congress has specifically authorized them to regulate in this sphere. So my, my fear is... When Congress can't pass a damn thing, even the things that right. most Americans agree on, they're sure as hell not going to get their shit together enough to grant regulatory authority uh, to an agency that is extremely controversial for something like climate change. So you have this mm -hmm. overreach the day before, and then the next day the court says, whoa, 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 government too big, back off. So I just, and I get it. In one case, it's right. state, right? I get it. Right. It's Native American, so pish posh. And the next state, it's something like it's, climate change. It's, so. well, it's states' so, rights for me, not for thee. Right. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. The, so. the climate change ruling, <laughs> as far as agencies and so on, I, I find interesting because that almost relates a little bit to the Department of Labor and the vaccine mandate that they tried to pass. And now they have just opened that up. So you're going to tell me that the Department of Labor and OSHA now possibly they don't have the ability to enforce certain rules for worker safety and so and, on. Right. So then this is another case. I'm like, well, where's the line then? Because that is right. how agencies actually act as they have. And now, now the argument against that is, well, Congress should just give them the authority. I get it. But like I said, Congress can't tie its own shoe. How is it supposed to tie the shoe of someone else? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, okay, I this is me being, I'm being, tongue in cheek a little bit here and I'm oversimplifying things and I'm being slightly dramatic, but I was thinking about this. Okay. So my review of these cases is state states can't regulate guns, but they can regulate a woman's body and native American territories. Yep. The yes. environmental protection agency can't regulate the environment. Public tax dollars can be used to pay for religious education and prayer by public school coaches is a-okay. That's the, that's the takeaway from the last couple of weeks. And again, I know I'm oversimplifying and I know there's people out there that are going to say, come on, you crazy liberal. I understand that it's not that simple, but that's kind of the blow by blow that I felt in the last couple of weeks. And it just, it hurt. It stung. I think that people need to hear it in simpler terms sometimes though. I think I, I think so, like in particular with Dobbs, uh, you're seeing a lot of, uh, well, actually, <laughs> all, all this really did was give this to the states. No, that's but bullshit. I, but 
it's it's completely bullshit because it, what we've seen almost immediately is what state legislatures are enacting or trying to enact is completely batshit insane and unhealthy and and I mean I there are a billion reasons why w- women would get an abortion and all of them in my opinion are are legitimate at, at least certainly none of my business. Mm-hmm. Um, but for cases of, you know, like ectopic pregnancy, yeah. uh, for what we've seen, uh, uh, with in Ohio with a, a 10 year old rape victim, yep. I, I, I think those are certainly extreme examples, but they're, they were okay. these microcosms of what, what are the con the unintended consequences of something okay. like this? Everyone keeps saying that's an extreme example, but let's talk about the law that was at issue in Dobbs. Okay. So the Dobbs came out on June 24th, which ironically is the day after the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And it just was like, you couldn't give us a day to enjoy <laughs> ourselves. Thank you. Okay. So, but that decision arose from the challenge to a law in Missouri, or was it Mississippi? Either way, one of those two MISS states that outlawed virtually all abortions after 15 weeks, including those for rape and incest. Okay. So those, those crazy extreme examples were outlawed. Okay. So, so that's what the law was that the court said, Nope, that law no longer let's kick it back. Okay. So what is the effect of Dobbs Dobbs? Um, I'm sorry. The court said that law was okay. Not, not kick it out. The course kicked the case out. The court kicked the case out. Okay. So let's talk about what Dobbs actually did. It overrules Roe and Casey, which is the case that reaffirmed Roe um, in the 90s. And I want to talk for a second about Roe and Casey because Democrats have done a terrible job of messaging what those cases actually say and what they actually mean. Mm -hmm. Neither of those cases ever granted an unconditional right to abortion. The court never granted women the right to murder babies, as is often stated. Okay, so let's start with Roe. It's decided in 1973. In that case, Uh, The court said that, generally speaking, criminalizing abortion violates a constitutional right to privacy, which is inherent in the liberty guarantee of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. We've all we all know that one state states cannot deprive the right to life, liberty without due process of law. Okay, fine. But the court also said that states do have a compelling interest in the potential life of a fetus. So what that means is there is a point in the pregnancy when states can say, whoa, 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 abortion is no longer okay because the fetus has um, developed to a point of, of personhood or to a point where, you know, they could, um, if that, if that baby was born today, they would likely be um, viable. Okay. So they set up a trimester based framework to balance the right of the woman and the rights of the states. The first trimester the court said the state cannot regulate abortion because in those first 12 weeks, it's just too early for the state to the state's rights. Sorry, the state's interest to outweigh a woman's right to abort the baby. The second trimester states can regulate if the regulation is reasonably related to the health of the pregnant person. And in the third trimester, the trimester where a baby is generally viable, um, if born, the state can prohibit abortion unless necessary for the health of the pregnant person. So that's when the state's rights actually outweigh the right of the pregnant person. So Roe did not grant that unconditional right of abortion at any point. Um, Then Casey came along in 1992 
And it got rid of that trimester-based framework and it created a more flexible standard, which basically said before viability, which is around 22 to 27 weeks of pregnancy, depending on who you ask, states cannot enact laws that put substantial obstacles in the path of the woman seeking abortion. That's the standard. So there never has been a right to abortion in third trimester. A woman has never been allowed to walk around at 38 weeks pregnant and say, you know, I just don't feel like it anymore. Let's get rid of this baby. That's not what this has been about. It's not what Mm -hmm. it's ever been about. And I think that's really important because I'm sick of people framing people who are pro Roe, pro Casey as baby killers, as murderers. That's not what this is about. So the Dobbs decision overrules Roe and Casey and decades of other abortion cases that relied on those decisions and said that this law that outlaws abortion after um, 15 weeks, even for cases of rape and incest, um, is constitutional. And in doing so, well, I'll pause for a second before I go down the rabbit hole of what Justice Alito's decision is based on. Do you guys have any, do you want to stop me or <laughs> before I nope. keep this train on the road? I, keep going. Okay. No, I, I, I no. Okay, so in his decision, Justice Alito's main argument is that abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution at all, so therefore it cannot be a constitutional right. My problem with this is that so many other things are not mentioned in the Constitution because, spoiler alert, the Constitution was written by a bunch of bleeping white dudes in bleeping the 1780s. You want to know what else isn't mentioned in the Constitution? Gay marriage transgender rights, interracial marriage, and, you know, women like myself. Right. And hold the phones for my Second Amendment friends, because you know what else isn't on the Constitution? AR-15s, because they didn't exist yet. And his ancillary point is that, yeah, while we do recognize some fundamental rights that are not expressly mentioned in the Constitution, those rights are so, quote, deeply rooted in our nation's history end quote, that abortion is not one of those deeply rooted rights. All right, Sammy, here's the issue. You want to know what our nation's history is deeply rooted in? White men making decisions that benefit white men. Our nation's history is deeply rooted in slavery, sexism, racism, etc. So no, abortion probably isn't a deeply rooted right because women didn't even have the right to vote until the 19th Amendment, which wasn't enacted until 1920. So this, the basis on which his entire decision relies is for me, a Drake law student who wasn't, didn't even do particularly well in con law can undercut it in two minutes right here. I, I mean, to me, and I, I 3000% agree with you. I think for him, even if I were speaking from a standpoint, I mean, I am a straight white male, but like from someone who, who wants to discount all of that, I think there are a billion things that Congress has done uh, a very, piss poor job of but very earnest attempt at regulating <laughs> section 230 the internet didn't exist <laughs> 17 in the, in, right. in the, right. the 18th century in the right. in the 19th century the, it didn't exist and we've done a very hard time um any type of e-commerce cryptocurrency right. cars we regulate the hell I, out of cars i mean if you if you right. want to regulate if you want to talk about just even Oil. Even, a, even in the genre that they're in now uh casual sex between unmarried people is not yes in yeah. the, yes in the constitution either so let's talk about that because so i hate to bring it to all you congressmen <laughs> out there that are you know 
<laughs> yeah, because I'm sure none of them have ever had a, right yeah, exactly a sexual relations outside of marriage. Exactly. So um, I guess before we get to why this is terrifying and other ways that this decision could affect rights, like you just said, like, um, you know, sex between partners that aren't married, sex between race, interracial couples, his last point, his last basis for the decision is that the case shouldn't be bound by stare decisis, which is the idea that courts shouldn't overturn prior precedent when there's um, unless there's a compelling reason to do so. But my question is, what is the compelling reason to overturn Roe and Casey now? Because nothing has changed in the last 50 years in the, in the sphere of religion or science to warrant this change. The only thing that's changed is the political climate. And he compared this case to Brown v. Board of Education, which you guys probably know, I'm sure our listeners know that that's the case that said the separate but equal doctrine is unconstitutional. And that case did overrule precedent. The yep. difference between Brown and this case is that Brown granted rights to people of color, the right to equal access to education. Um, here, we're taking away a constitutional right for half the population. And I, if it's not the first time, it's one of the first times in history that the court has taken away a right in reversing opinion um, instead of granting it. And um, I know we're getting close to a break, so I'll finish my thought about this by just saying, in effect, the court concluded that abortion is not a fundamental right under the Constitution. Because it's not a constitutional right, state laws are now going to be reviewed with the most lenient standard of review. You'll hear this in the news. It's called rational basis scrutiny, which means that laws survive constitutional muster so long as there's a, quote, rational basis uh, on which the legislature think that the law would serve their state interests. So protecting the life of the unborn state interest law is good to go. So I think that's what we're about to see come and we can talk about more, um, more about that after, after the break, if you guys want. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I sure. would love to, as Steph said, we are going to take a break. I do have questions about that. Uh, the difference between apparently protecting the life of the unborn and protecting the life of the born, uh, <laughs> as well as I think some other unintended consequences when you give a nod back to, uh, historical precedents, uh, thinking particularly as a state of Minnesota where gay marriage is legal, but there are still technically anti-sodomy laws on the books, mm -hmm. and understanding what maybe some other ripple effects might be coming here that for all the people who say, oh, don't worry about it, maybe. Oh, we're just, worried, and we'll yeah, tell you why exactly. you should be too. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, <laughs> right? we'll, we'll go ahead and talk about that. Chris, anything before we hit this break? Yeah, I... Actually, I just, uh, when we come back as well, I would like to ask Stephanie why the Democrats shouldn't get a pass on this either. And I'll, and I'll give a couple yes. of examples as well, because I think they're just as complicit in these, in these decisions. Yeah, totally agree. Excellent. Well, uh, with that very, uh, <laughs> uplifting and happy non-contentious we'll some fun stuff at some with point non-contentious uh uh notes there we will go ahead and take a word from our sponsors the dog days of summer are upon us and the weekend lineup of fun events at revelton distilling company are really heating up so if you want something fun to do on saturday evenings then look no further than what's brewing at revelton at 1400 west clay street in osceola iowa Starting July 9th, Jesse and the Medicine Men are playing with Faux Wheels and Sushi Truck providing the food. Followed by July 16th, Sean Sullivan plays. July 23rd, Griffiths and Lindgren take the stage with Culinary Nomad Food Truck. 
And finally, wrapping up the month of July, on the 30th, come listen to Jake Schrope and have some of Chad's Pizza Food Truck. Can't make it to the tasting room? No problem. Check out their Instagram, at DC for recipes and tutorials on how to make their amazing spirits at home. And we are back. Once again, this is Old Man Strength, a podcast of Three Beards Media. Uh, please go ahead and check out our sponsors. Uh, we are very excited that they are helping us bring this content uh, to you. Once again, we are joined by Stephanie Copley. Uh, Steph, right before the break, we were talking about maybe uh, some unintended consequences yeah. of of some of these decisions and maybe uh, the the ripple effect that might come about. Yeah. So I, over the weekend was on a run and I just could not stop thinking about this stuff. So I got done with my run and I sat down and I started typing and I messaged Chris, like my fingers were going faster than I could, like I couldn't <laughs> keep up because so much of this was just rolling. So I have quite the list of why you should be scared. No big deal. Um, but the first one is what you guys mentioned that it's scary for other rights. The ripple effect could, uh, impact other rights that we have just assumed are well-established um, those include the right to contraception, the rights of, um, you know, same sex relation, the rights of same sex couples and same sex relationships, um, interracial marriage even. And I know that sounds crazy, but let's talk about this because there's uh, several decisions that um, rely on the same framework that the Roe and Casey decisions relied on, which has since been overturned. And so now you have to wonder if we're relying on that same framework that no longer is valid. What if someone challenges these other decisions that um, are based on that same framework? And, and one of those is it's a, the, the Griswold case where the court held that states cannot limit access to contraception um, to non-married couples or, and married couples as well. And the issue was that marital privacy became a fundamental right under the 14th amendment. So it becomes this privacy thing that we continue to hear about um, that was that Roe and Casey were partially based on. Then you have Lawrence, which the court held that states cannot criminalize consensual sex between partners of the same sex because there's a right to sexual privacy under the 14th amendment. Then we have Oberf uh, Obergfell, which was the case that the court ruled that states cannot make gay marriage illegal because again, there's a um, privacy well, that was partially due process and equal protection under the 14th Amendment. But again, the 14th Amendment is there. And these all come from the same fabric of the 14th Amendment and the right to privacy over personal life decisions. And again, I'll say it, it's the 14th Amendment. No state can deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. That's what we keep talking about. Now, the people, the um, justices, Kavanaugh um, and Alito said, you know what, these decisions are well-established. Nothing in this decision, the Dobbs decision, is meant to suggest that those decisions are at risk. But Justice Thomas said, oh, wait a second. These decisions are all very much in doubt. And that is terrifying to me because the very next day you have all of these um, conservative groups calling for the um, for groups to challenge the right to gay marriage, to challenge all of these rights that we assumed were well-established. And what I think is so funny is that Justice Thomas in his concurrence mentions um, 
the Griswold case, the Lawrence case and the Obergefell case, but he doesn't mention loving, which is the case about (laughs) interracial marriage. And that's interesting because if you don't know yet, Justice Thomas is in an interracial marriage. So I just, that decision that, um, I guess his words, um, not the decision as a whole, but that part of it was very scary to me um, because you have these conservative justices saying, nope, those rights are not impacted. But the Thomas is saying, yes, they are. And frankly, at this point, I don't believe anything those conservative justices are saying. If the right case comes up, I think they could say to hell with it. Let's just keep this train rolling. Well, and that's and that's why I said that I thought that Justice Thomas in his decisions was giving a very loud wink and a nod. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you mentioned loving like versus, the dog whistle. Right. Yes. Oh, it, it, it absolutely. It's not even it's a, it's a siren at this point. Right. <laughs> you know what? You're but, probably right. But I mean, you, like you mentioned a loving versus Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, which he did very conveniently uh, overlook. Um, but it, I mean, if if you look at uh, uh, anything going on with the January 6th committee and his wife, wife. Uh, Jenny Thomas, who very much has been very clearly documented, this is not hearsay by any means, very clearly documented that uh, her her action towards trying to delegitimize the 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 election um, uh, his inability to uh, recuse himself, yeah. even just uh, passively, uh, he's he's signaling harder than I think he had. Again, so he's uh, his confirmation was uh, thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And, and I think he's signaling harder than he ever has uh, in his entire time on the bench. Uh, like it's basically a now's the time is, yeah. is what I've gotten I- from this decision. That that's kind of what I had thought as well. I his confirmation was extremely contentious. Yeah, it was very I mean, tumultuous. It's, it, it's it's the first one that I remember vividly being overtly political. Right. Um, just based off of of my memories and things like that, and I think that he. I I don't want to say has has bided his time and waited and waited. But I think that he sees an opportunity now with those new judges that are a lifetime appointment, that it's free reign to to go ahead and and, and do what he has been waiting to do. I mean, mean, sexual harassment literally as a term entered the lexicon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. During his his confirmation. Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And so that justice gets confirmed. And I mean, I, I just can't. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me to think about the course of history since then. But so now you've got this man deciding these cases, cases that we have relied on for 50 years. We're talking generations of women. um, Well, not just women. We are talking generations of Americans who have relied on this being the law. My mom came of age under row. It's been the law my entire life. And now it's not the law for my daughters. And to suddenly pull out the rug from this after years of constitutional challenges, years of people bringing the same type of case to the court. That's terrifying. Overnight, my right was gone. And like I said before, nothing has changed in those 50 years except the extremism of conservatives and the comfortability with which they have come to the forefront. And I think Justice Thomas is an example of that. 
well, let, that will lead me into the to the little tease question that I had had before the break. And I will say that I I brought this up on, on Twitter. And again, I know bringing up a, you know, an intelligent conversation on Twitter is probably not <laughs> the best idea. But I I really do believe and tell me if I'm wrong, Tim, that's never been a problem for you. So. <laughs> I'll uh, tell you. It's never right? been a problem for me either. Uh, <laughs> The Democrats at some point in the last 50 years have had enough majority. Oh well, let's God. back up. I don't know that I've ever heard the term. Oh, Tim's going to hammer me for this. The word codify before Roe mm-hmm. v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Because now they're talking about, you know, they need to now codify it yeah. and make it federal law and so on. Okay, well, let me ask you a question. Steph, to your point, you just said. There's been challenge after challenge mm-hmm. after challenge to this law. Why has there not been, are you telling me that there has not been a big enough majority by the Democrats at any point in the last 50 years that they could not have codified that as law? No, I, I have absolutely no explanation for that. I cannot explain oh, it to you. I, it is one of the most frustrating um, intellectual exercises of my entire life. Well, I have I will, no answer. I will tell you what I think the answer is. And it's for the same reason that at the times that the Republicans had a majority that they could have codified it as not law is because what are they going to run on then? And what are they going to run their campaigns on if they can't put people's fears into the voting booth? That's why. I think I think that's a fair point. I think I think for me, one big thing that it, that it always sticks out to me is. Um, Republicans are very quick to turn on their own uh, when someone steps outside of the mm-hmm. platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are all familiar with the term rhino, Republican in, in name only, right? right. But the Democrats have had so many dinos, so many Democrats <laughs> in name only, and they're fucking dinosaurs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If, yeah. if you look if you look at, at President Biden's history as a as a legislator, Mm-hmm. Uh, his stance on police reform, or Kamala Harris's stance on police. Kamala Harris is a cop. Um, and if you look at President Biden's stance on abortion uh, advocacy throughout the years, uh, he's a pretty damn conservative yeah. Democrat and has been for years. Yeah, and yeah. and I and I think. Uh, I, I think the Democrats have been running on this idea of bipartisanship forever. And, yeah. Yes, and, that right? is it. Because Democrats play this moral high ground game where they say we are going to clutch our pearls and play by the right. rules. Whereas Republican, I'm not suggesting Republicans are, are cheaters, whatever, but they don't play by the same rules. They get down I, and dirty. They go after it. And I'm not even criticizing that. They have been wildly successful in doing that. And meanwhile, they they don't care about making deals. No, and no, no, no. And meanwhile, Democrats are like, well, we want to do this the right way. There is no more time for a right way there. You've you passed on the right way 40 years ago. I, and I just I in that this is not just limited to abortion. This is the same with gun control. This, this is the same with uh, pretty much any social issue. And it's I had the same wildly frustrating. I had the same argument when it came to the gun control after Uvalde, 
was my same argument. I said, you're telling me that in the last X number of years, since Columbine, let's take Columbine mm-hmm. for an example, that the Democrats have, not had, years ago. have mm-hmm. not had enough power in Congress to pass a gun ban. That's what you're telling me. One of two things. And I and I kept getting, well, they, they can't right now because of, of Manson and, and so on. I said, so you're telling me that one of two things is going on. Either the Republicans are so much smarter at this game that they've been able to art outsmart the Democrats for 35 years with a filibuster, or the Democrats just don't know what the hell they're doing. And, and I kind of think it's a right. I kind of think it's it's truthful on both ends. And you know, I um I grew up in a small town, and I think I probably leaned conservative for a long time. And then I went to college, and things changed. And I I'm definitely got indoctrinated. Didn't yes, you? That's, that's right. <laughs> in those damn liberal colleges. That's right. That's me. I'm the perfect poster child for that. But you know, I at this point I don't feel like I identify with a Democrat because I am I am. I am Democrat in terms of where I stand on social issues. Yes, but I want to do something about it. I don't want to be someone who just stands up there and says, it's time to change. And then nothing ever happens. And I'm so frustrated and I know I'm not alone. And people keep saying, well, maybe this will rally the base to go vote. I have been voting. If one more person tells me to go vote, I'm going to punch him in the face. Yeah, this I, is not- I- go ahead. No, Let's no, cancel I cancel that voting ad we had no, going I, next year. I, I, I was going to say, I think, I think one of the biggest, the one of the biggest uh, successes that conservatives have had in this country for a long time was the framing of right versus left, and the idea mm-hmm. that Democrats are left because mm-hmm. in most developed nations mm-hmm. around the world this Democrat party would be a left center or like a, a, a right center, right party. They would mm-hmm. not be left. They're not anywhere close to left, but you, you get all these people believing that uh, Democrats are these leftists and these Marxists, Marxists and these communists and these socialists, which by the way, are very different political ideologies. <laughs> right. um, but you've convinced all these people that if you're not conservative, you're Hitler and Stalin and, and Mao and everything else. Yeah. And again, in you go to Denmark and our Democrat Party would be pretty damn conservative. And so there's also been this huge like. I don't care if you're a, a Bernie bro or whatever, but what you found is even Bernie Sanders, who's pretty conservative by a European standpoint, but is considered way liberal. Mm-hmm. And so now what's, what, what that's done is this it's fractured this other party that isn't even really diametrically opposed as much as, as no. it's been framed. And here's the frustrating part is people will listen to this and think I'm, I'm one of those like liberal snowflakes. And that cannot be farther from the truth. I am, I guarantee you, I fall within that giant pool of people in the middle, but 80%. no one ever, ta- yes, but you've got these people on both ends who are so loud and so, and frankly, powerful that nothing that's ever, nothing that the vast majority of Americans want, the reasonable people, the reasonable solutions ever get done. And this is why this issue in particular, the abortion issue, getting sent back to the states really scares me because there are a million things that belong to the states. 
there are, there just are, there's, there are certain things that the federal government should not touch schools, you know, because what's, what a school is in New York city is not the same as what a school is in Iowa. Like yeah. there are just certain logical issues and rights that belong to the states to decide, but not when it comes to fundamental human rights, because history has shown us that putting human rights in the hands of the states tends to not go very well. Like we talked about slavery being the obvious example of segregation, more recently, gay rights, trans rights, and state leadership changes at such a faster pace. What is and isn't legal with abortion could change depending on your majority. It could swing back and forth based on the extremism of that majority. And that goes both ways. And that's why it scares me that um, those that very loud minority on both sides tends to be in charge in the states. And that's why, uh, why coming to the states uh, for something as important like abortion is, is scary to me. I mean, I, I think I, there's two thoughts that made me that you made me think of. Is first of all, the idea of screaming states, states rights, states rights, states mm -hmm. rights. I mean, it's it's uh, the rallying cry of the Civil War, and I always have to <laughs> yeah. ask, states rights to do what? right, right? <laughs> like again, it comes down to fundamental human rights, right? Um, the other thing is, like you said, that the the powerful are making more decisions. I, mm -hmm. If you look at the vast majority, this has been done in poll after poll after poll of NRA members. Yeah. The majority of NRA members are in favor of common sense right. gun regulation. Right. The majority of NRA members are, mm -hmm. but the NRA lobby does not the even advocate people. for their, they don't even advocate for, it doesn't matter it's what the general Americans want. They don't even advocate for what their own mm -hmm. members want. Yeah. Yeah. But then you've got some douchebag like Ted Cruz uh, wrapping bacon around a gun and pretending like, like this is some sort of freedom. Uh, while meanwhile, his own kid doesn't want to hug him. Um, <laughs> like, like literally the guy is completely clueless, but he, he speaks to these people that that, well, he's just speaking for the common. No, he's not speaking for the common man. No, right, Ted right, Cruz he, hasn't been around a common man, and I don't, <laughs> and I don't know when. I mean, Mitch McConnell the other day said that that the reason why there's a worker shortage is because people are flush with cash from. I from, saw that. I was like, some stimulus payments. I'm like, dude, you could have given me ten times the stimulus payment you gave me, and I would still feel poor as shit like yeah. i don't understand what you think that means meanwhile he is literally the seventh richest member of congress yeah. like that dude made more money in the five minutes it took for him to make that statement than anyone has ever gotten in a stimulus I mean, payment technically ever. he's right because he's flush with cash and i can't remember <laughs> the last time he has done any work you guys start this. So this segment, since the break, you asked me, you know, what, what are the ripple effects and what, am, why is it scary? So I'll just yes. give you the last one on my bullet point. And it's okay. that we are codifying Christianity in this decision. And what I mean by that is this all centers around, well, not all, but a large part of these decisions center around when does human life begin? Doctors and science don't agree on this issue. Not all religions agree on this issue that life begins at conception. In fact, Jewish law, um, they believe under Jewish law, the fetus is not viewed as separate from the parent's body until the baby's first breath. So it doesn't begin until the baby's life. So who believes that life begins at conception? Christians. And if this is such a religious issue by saying, I don't have a right to an abortion, you're saying I need to live by your Christian ideals. And I'm very uncomfortable with that. And I will say I'm uncomfortable with that as a Christian, I identify yes. as a Christian and 
I'm a Christian, but I don't believe you have to be. I don't believe my neighbor has to be. If you are a Christian and you don't believe abortion is biblical, don't get one. It's that simple. And frankly, if you're a Christian, it shouldn't matter to you what the law says that I can do. Because my whole thing about this is if you're every day trying to live and walk as Jesus lived and walked, you shouldn't care what the law says. You should be living by Jesus's example and his uh, his beliefs and how he portrays himself. You should be someone that people feel safe coming to. You shouldn't need a law to force people into what you believe. And if you do, you're doing it wrong because by celebrating the removal of a right of half the population, you're alienating half the population and the men who support that half. You are not drawing people into Christ's love. You are alienating them. And the only people you're drawing to your Christian base is the extremists. You are rallying your base. And I'm not a biblical scholar, just as I'm not a constitutional law scholar, but I don't think that's what Jesus Christ intended. And it scares me that we're codifying Christianity because again, this goes back to the decisions about if it was a a Hindu coach praying at, at midfield, I don't think the court would have decided the same way. So so we're going to get to uh, a sponsor question here in a second, but it did bring up something that I did want to ask you because it is something that has been proposed that I find uh, certainly intriguing because uh, you mentioned that that this does fall at odds with uh, other religions. And mm-hmm. I think uh, particularly when it comes to Judaism, as you mm-hmm. had mentioned, I could there potentially be a first amendment challenge to this decision? I, I, so I wondered about that because, but first amendment is tricky. Uh, it's not people saying you can't, that's my first amendment, right? Well, I don't think the vast majority of people understand what first amendment means first sure. of all, but I, I don't know is the answer to that. I wondered the same thing when I, when I started reading about Judaism and what their, what Jewish law says. And because if you are preventing a Jewish person from, but the argument would be, well, they don't have a religious right to seek the abortion, you know? So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I'd have but, to think but, that one through. But but do they? Because the, the, the Talmud doesn't just allow it. It actually, it actually commands it. supports it, it as health care. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It actually, it actually, it actually says this is what you should do. So yeah. at that point, it's not about allowing. It's You're literally right. about following attendance of your religion. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, so that's a great point. I hadn't uh, thought about it that way. You're absolutely right. And and so that 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 to me is the one thing I've wondered because I I that's fully anticipate I that 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 could be something that would be a potential challenge. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's interesting. I had not heard. I had not thought of that. Well done, Tim. We just solved one of the problems. <laughs> don't don't well, give him a compliment. I was trying to lighten the mood for I your sponsor you, question. Okay, I, gave, I want your sponsor to your come rules. back. I gave you rules, Stephanie, and one of them was not to phrase him. Such a bad idea. It's like a, it's like feeding the dog at the table. He just keeps coming back. Uh, no, it's no, it's 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 all right. Um, I am a constitutional law scholar, uh, as as per Wikipedia. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, uh, we do want to go ahead and and get into our our sponsored question brought to you by Kyle Lehman and Wintrust Mortgage. Very grateful to bring Kyle and the team at Wintrust Mortgage on as a partner of Three Beards Media and this podcast, Old Man Strength. So with that, Chris, I will let you go ahead and ask this question. 
Are you in the market for a new house and unsure of the mortgage process? Want to know that you have someone looking out for you? Kyle Lehman from Wintrust Mortgage is a down-to-earth, knowledgeable lender who can be there for you in your corner. He can work with you in any of the 50 states and is just what you need to expand your home search. Kyle will work with you through the entire process with little to no work from you. Take the worry of the mortgage process out of the equation so that you can focus on looking for your dream home. Contact Kyle at www.wintrust.com forward slash Kyle dash Lehman or call him at 515-473-0546. All right. Well, there you go. You know, earlier in the podcast, you talked about being a mom to two young girls. Yes. Um, And I'm sure you've thought about, you know, how you're going to frame certain things to them as they grow up. And, yeah. and, and and tell them but I'm curious now with 2022 Stephanie what would you go back 10 years and tell Stephanie from the version of 2012 oh that was the year I graduated law school so that was a very pivotal year for me because um I wasn't sure I wanted to be a lawyer and I was like, well, I have this law degree. What the <laughs> hell am I going to do now? So you're a typical liberal who just racked up a bunch of debt and didn't know what you wanted to do. And now you just well, frankly, it was the economy's check, right? fault because I graduated from college and wanted to go into sports journalism and the economy crashed. And I was like, well, I don't know if newspapers are going to exist, so I better do something else. Um, now that she's I, flush with all the stimulus cash. Yeah, this is really coming full circle. Um, I think I would tell myself to not do the quote unquote right thing. Um, and to instead follow my passions and dreams more, um, because I was in very much of a, um, this is a scary economy. I better lawyers are always going to exist. I should just go to law school. It's the safe and right thing to do. And then I joined a firm, which they were very wonderful to me. Um, but it definitely wasn't my passion in life. And then I ended up doing workers' compensation law for 10 years, which shockingly wasn't my passion in life. I liked it. It was a good job, but it wasn't my passion. And it wasn't until 2019 when Chris Williams gave me and Elisa the opportunity to do the title line podcast that I finally felt like, okay, I'm doing the thing that I originally set out to do and do something in sports media. And, you know, that was seven years later that I finally got around to it just by the grace of, of Chris. So I think if I could go back 10 years ago, I would tell baby lawyer me, you have some time to figure out what you want to do, take some risks and trust yourself. Great answer. Thanks. It is a great answer. I, I also thought about like- it a lot. If you can't tell. <laughs> I also just like the idea of baby lawyer. I think that's a, right. that's a I know. Oh God. Coming this, coming this fall to NBC, baby yeah. lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned your your sports passions. Let's yeah. let's hit a little bit on Title Nine. Tell yes. me uh what was that like to start that and 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 just give us a little background on that. Sure. So Elisa Woods and I co-host the, the Title IX podcast and the Title IX title is tongue in cheek. We don't actually talk about Title IX legislation. We just think it's funny because Title IX is, of course, the legislation that gave women the equal seat at the table when it came to collegiate athletics. And we felt like that was our opportunity to have the equal seat at the table of the guys at Cyclone Fanatics. So um, we talk about everything sports related. We talk primarily about the cyclones, but we try our best to give special attention and special shout outs to the female athletes, both at the collegiate level and the professional level. And, um, we do it every other week, every other Monday we try. 
And it's funny because when we first met, it was the summer of 2019. Elisa and I had never met each other before. Um, Chris just had met her through various sponsorships and I'd known Chris since college. And he was like, you know, I think you two might hit it off. And we did, we had lunch and I felt like I had known her for my entire life. And I know we got lucky because of that chemistry that we were able to hit it off right away, but she's become such an important person to me, um, because of the way that it, this has been a, such an important creative outlet for me. And it's just been a lot of fun. Um, she's part of my family now and we see the world in a lot of similar ways, but we see it differently enough that we can kind of, um, go back and forth and, and challenge each other and challenge each other's worldviews. So it's been, it's been nothing but a blessing and nothing but a joy to do. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, Tim? It, it does. Absolutely. <laughs> it does a little bit. Chris and I did not know each other at all. We met for the first time three months ago, four months ago, something like that. Um, uh, no, but we've been is, doing this podcast for two years. I was going to say what? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. We, we did you see know. my face? I was <laughs> like, what is he talking about? Yeah, we had literally <laughs> never met in person. We've been doing this thing. For oh, like I'm sorry. Oh. Yes, met in person. Yeah, I see what but you we mean. Been, I thought we had met funny. each other before. Oh, no, no. We've, we've been doing this whole thing blindfolded. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that math doesn't check. I'm not good yeah, at that. No, but. no, the, no, the thing that I also appreciate about uh, the Title IX podcast is that it's also something that uh, a whole lot of grumpy old men don't understand, but think they do and get to use this as an excuse to complain. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's also true. <laughs> it's been great. And, you know, people always ask, do you get... Um, is most of your feedback positive or do you have some bad eggs? And yeah, there's a couple where people like, God, that was just unnecessary. But 99% of the feedback we get is supportive and um, positive. And I'm just so thankful that people tune in every couple of weeks and that it's given me a platform to talk about some stuff that's very important to me, not political, but uh, very important to me nonetheless. So I've been very grateful for the chance. Well, that's fantastic. And, yeah. and I, I'm very humbled that you came on and, and uh, got a, a chance to speak about some of those things that maybe uh, aren't necessarily fitting for your podcast. Right. But. And it's weird. Um, I mentioned I was um, an administrative law judge for workers' compensation. So that means I had to be impartial and couldn't really speak publicly about my political views. And um, before that, I worked for the attorney general's office and um, felt pretty strongly that I shouldn't speak really politically. Um and so for a lot of years, let me think back, probably six years, I just never publicly spoke about the way I viewed certain issues. And that was hard because I am a fiery human. I am an opinionated person. But um, after things started happening in the, you know, with the Black Lives Movement and things like that, I just felt like, you know, I can't really bite my tongue anymore. There becomes a point when if you have a platform, you need to say what you stand for. Otherwise, what's the point of the platform? And so that's kind of why I'm here. But yeah, it's um, it's taking a step out of my comfort box. But that's sometimes what that's what I said I would say to myself in 2012. So it's time to say it today, right? That's right. Yeah. Can yeah, I? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, no, Sorry. go ahead, please. Um, can I? Can we create a new segment on this podcast right now? <laughs> Please. Sure, we don't know we, what we're doing here, anyways. We'll take any kind can of we call it you... the shut the F up segment because there's a couple of things about this issue where I just want to say shut the F up. And I feel like I need to say them while I have this chance 
Is that yes. okay with you guys? Please, sure. Please. We, we, we're hey, we're hey, looking for a sponsor for this. Shut the f up. <laughs> hey, 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 Chris, hey, Chris. Shut the f up and let her talk. <laughs> All right. I've been hearing a few arguments that I just want to say stop about. Okay. And one of those is masks because I hear a lot of conservatives saying, but you wanted to control my body when it came to masks. And I just need to say, those are not the same thing. In those cases, I was asking you to wear a piece of cloth over your nose for a couple of minutes. I what it's, that is not comparable to forcing a pregnancy on someone. Pregnancy is hard. Pregnancy is hard. I had two completely normal, healthy pregnancies, and it was some of the hardest physical experiences of my life, not only during the pregnancy, but the aftermath. You guys, it destroys your body, I'm telling you. And then on top of that, mask wearing is to benefit the community at large, because if you weren't wearing a mask, you're putting me in danger, and then I'm in turn putting my kids in danger who are putting their friends at daycare and school in danger and so on. Me being pregnant or not pregnant does not affect you. It has nothing to do with your health or safety. So it's not the same thing and stop trying to use it. I can't stand it. I didn't, even argue, I didn't even argue that your pregnancy does affect the community at large when we consider <laughs> how many people are on welfare and, and, and all of the public assistance. Yeah, I wasn't even going to go there, but you right. went there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And but then my, you see... Go ahead, yeah. Nero, go ahead. No, I was Tim, gonna say my the F up. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> this is no, my Steph. segment, guys. Go, go. Um, just the individual autonomy part of it. You know, if you don't want an abortion, don't get one. Just like if you don't believe in gay marriage, don't go to a gay wedding or don't marry someone who's gay. It just doesn't affect you in those ways. And then the last one is the argument where people say, if you don't like it in your state, just move. Do you realize how privileged that sounds? And not you two, but people who say that. I am, I'm fine. Like I have a stable job. I have a stable income. I have stable daycare, but my entire life is here. My kids' lives are here. It would be my parents' lives, my sister's life. It would be next to impossible for me to just get up and move. And I'm in a very comfortable position to suggest to someone who is not in a comfortable financial position, who in a lot of those cases, people seeking abortions are not in a comfortable financial situation, telling them to just move is so privileged and so awful. And I can't stomach it anymore. I saw some talking head, like some legitimate blue checkmark talking head on Twitter the other day saying that the 10 year old in Ohio should just move. Yeah, That's like, like saying, you- just vote to that girl who got shot on the 4th of July. <laughs> like, we, can't, yeah. we can't say stuff like that anymore. I know it's, it's, it's so, it's so frustrating yeah. about how, um, I want the government out of my life, but in yours again, yeah. it's it's freedom for me and not for thee. Yeah. Like that's yeah. it, that's literally what it is. That's what yeah. it comes down to. And the last thing I'll say, and this is not the part of the s the shut the up segment, but uh, the, you can swear and- it's fine. <laughs> yeah, we we swear all the time. <laughs> okay, sorry. One time um, you can say the f word, Stephanie. Go ahead. I can't do it. I'll give you an f word no, pass. It's fine. <laughs> so in Iowa, where we stand um, today, is that the governor had had asked the the Iowa Supreme Court to take a look at the um, the the legislation that was put in place, but was um, suit, they were sued for it. It was the legislation put in place in 2018 that banned abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. And that was one of the strictest at the time, but that got, um, challenged and there was an injunction put in place, meaning it just stopped for the time being. Um, and the governor has asked the Supreme court to review that. And that's interesting because just days before the United States Supreme court ruled in Dobbs, 
the Iowa Supreme Court held that the abortion abortion is not a constitutional right under the Iowa Constitution. And why that's significant is that state constitutions can grant more rights to its citizens than the federal constitution, but they can't be more restrictive. So in other words, now Iowa could have said abortion is a constitutional right, and that would have been okay. But now they've said it's not a constitutional right, which in effect will make legislation um, that makes abortion illegal, it will make that uh, legislation more likely to be constitutional. So I assume um, if we don't get something that the court messes with soon, we'll get legislation soon that will be in line with what's been passed in, in years prior. So that's where we are in Iowa. Well, so what you need to do in Iowa is what we have up here in Minnesota. You need to get uh, Republican legislators that don't even read the bill <laughs> to the point where they passed <laughs> THC edibles and didn't oh, even no. realize that they did it. And and they complained that it was in the fine print. And you're like, oh, the language God. of the bill is not called fine print. And sir. you literally have one job to make laws. <laughs> you should probably read. Just the read. Just, just, read. Just, 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 read. just read. Just, just read. read it. The only state in the country where, where we have passed uh, marijuana legalization by accident. Yeah, it's the most <laughs> Minnesota nice thing ever. <laughs> We're going to be passively aggressive nice. It is. It is. Because usually what that means is people that are just confused and angry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, uh, Steph, right, I'm we, done now. That's all. That's everything. No, we we appreciate uh, what uh, what you've shared. If you ever want to come back, if if there's ever anything that is grinding your gears that you <laughs> you're you going to regret saying that. That's right. Oh, no, no, no. no trust me. Uh, Chris and I have have crossed a bridge a long time ago where <laughs> trolls are going to accuse us that's of right. any number of things. Yeah, uh, I'm ready for that. Bring it. Yeah, up. no, no, we've. We've literally been accused of being uh, one sided for being Iowa State grads. So I don't know what the hell that even means. I don't either. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. Uh, Go Cyclones. That's what that means. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we, we, we literally had a police officer on right after George Floyd, which happened like a mile from my front yeah. steps. Yeah. And I was anti cop. And we're like, we literally had a police officer. So anyway. Right. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, and to be fair, you guys had me on. That's every everything I just spewed out of my heart was my view. You know, that's um, that's not necessarily your guys's or whatever. Well, but I, but I think that <laughs> I think that we pride ourselves though on on being fair about yeah. the issues and being. You know what I mean? I mean, I I I am probably more right leaning on certain mm -hmm. aspects, not when it comes to social issues. Yeah. Um, but. I, I have learned a long time ago, there's no way anybody allows you to be in the middle because right. you get hammered by both yeah. sides. And it's really heartbreaking. And, and it's really, yeah, it's really kind of sad. I mean, I, I, I'm perfectly okay with calling out the hypocrisy of one side and then applying it to the other side when I see it. And yeah. the amount of people that do not like that, uh, left and right is astounding. And this is why we'll never get representation of the people in the middle because the people in the middle just are like, I'm not going to take it because I'm bashing my head against the wall from right. the, the um, criticism of both those extremist sides. So yeah. Anyway, on that really super lighthearted, happy note, thanks for having me. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, you know, Chris says that, that he tends to lean more right, whereas I tend to lean more correct. So <laughs> 
right. you know, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it took you a long time to get a shot in tonight. You must be I was just blabbering the whole time. I was trying to be polite. We had a, oh, a, a whatever. Yeah, okay. Well, thank uh, it, you guys for real. This has been uh, cathartic and therapeutic for me. And I appreciate you giving me a platform to, to say what's on my heart and mind. So thank you very, very much. Uh, thank you for coming on, Steph. Yeah, my it, pleasure. Any, any last thing you want to plug? No, just listen to the Title IX podcast. Um, follow us on Twitter. We try to have some fun. So check us out there. They can find you on Twitter at? At Steph Copley or at the um, Title Nine Pod, and Elisa Woods is at Elisa Who W H O. Excellent. Yeah. Well, Stephanie Copley, we appreciate you joining us on Old Man Strength, a podcast once again of Three Beards Media. Please go ahead and check out uh, Three Beard ThreeBeardsMedia.com. Yeah, uh, we have uh, some exciting things in the work, maybe a new podcast or two that is developing as we add to the stable of of what is in uh, the entire group that we pretend like we're some sort of media conglomerate here. Yeah. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Howard Stern should probably keep an eye out. We're, we're going right. to Howard Stern. Right. You guys are my competitors now. Why the oh, hell am I here? No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you, you go no. ahead and watch out, Steph. We're coming yeah. for you. Right. Um, Does no, that mean no. you're not coming to our launch party then in September, Steph? Is that what that means? <laughs> uh, just kidding. I support yeah. you guys. I think what you do is great. Excellent. Thank well, you. well, thank you. Uh, Chris, is there any other kind of housekeeping we need to cover? You mentioned the launch party. Is there anything else you want to let our listeners know about what we at Old Man Strength or Three Beards Media at Large have going on? No, like you said, we got uh, a couple new pods kind of in the works and some uh, exciting announcements coming up. Uh, but we are going to have an official Three Beards Media launch party with our sponsor, Revelton Distilling Company. September 2nd. So it'll be the Friday night before the home opener of the Iowa oh, State game. That's amazing. So uh, we're going, Aaron's flying in from Bitter Units. He'll be here. And uh, then we're going to tailgate and then watch Cyclones kick some ass that Sunday. And uh, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to watch some Hunter Deckers run around and throw the ball. And I'm pumped. So yeah, please go visit Relton Distilling at 1400 West. Clay Street in Osceola, Iowa. Make sure that you are giving them a lot of love because they've been showing us a lot of love and we very much appreciate that. Yeah. And thank you to Kyle Lehman for, for hopping on with us too and Wintrust Mortgage for the sponsored question. And we're, uh, we're ready to go. Absolutely. Well, once again, you guys have been listening to Old Man Strength. I am Tim Johnson joined by Chris Shipley. We appreciate you guys very much, and we will see you guys next time. Uh-oh.